This is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining us in these High Altitude Conversations, where we have the chance to talk to the decision makers, the people at the top, the chairs and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organizations and indeed, often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something for you to reflect on and perhaps utilize or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognized as our top problem solvers, and the one feature they all have in common is recognized management success in organizations of substance. I'm Dr. John Peebles, and I'm sitting today with a very interesting leader of our New Zealand business community. This is a man who graduated with an MA in Law and Archaeology from the University of Cambridge, completed banking and Harvard qualifications, and then, deserting the traditional, built a career in financial services in Australia and New Zealand. As an entrepreneur and also a philanthropist, he's challenged the norms and provoked new thinking in the ways we work in a generation of digital communication. Andrew Barnes, who built market leadership and innovation in the various areas of financial services and property, and now head Perpetual Guardian. You've altered concepts around uh, philanthropy. Did you ever think when you arrived in Australia at 27 years of age, you'd grab global attention for your management thinking? Morning, John. Um, no, uh, if, if I'm being honest, I went to uh, Australia on three days' notice for a month in 1987 um, to sort out a short-term problem. And for a whole heap of reasons, I then stayed for, for, for 20 years uh, in Australia and then subsequently moved across to, to, to New Zealand. I think it's fair to say at no point in my career has anything been planned. Um, and when we get to, to the latest phase where, as you say, people have been reporting on us and calling on us from around the world on, on the latest initiative, the four-day week, um, frankly, none of that was planned anyway any, at all and became as a complete shock to us that people would be that interested. So I, I certainly don't look at myself um, as a an expert in any shape or form. You know, my business career just seems to have evolved by accident. Was that part of the contamination of the University of Cambridge? Because it seemed to produce, uh, or be a hotbed, didn't it, of different thinking at one stage. And did you f have some principles that formed at that stage that you brought forward with you? Or was it, it was certainly not traditional? No, uh, I think uh, a lot of my thoughts Business leadership thinking came out of my time in the Navy rather than my time at university, uh, in that I do believe that the military does represent some of the best leadership environment that you can find anywhere in the world, and I, I was lucky enough to, to serve for a while in the Royal Navy. I think that I was, however, the, the last generation almost that went into university and then went on into financial services that didn't actually have a vocational degree. I, as you see, I'm, I'm an ar archaeologist primarily. Um, and I am also a product of, a, of an artistic family. I'm the freak of the family. I did business. Everybody else in the family is, is, is artists or, or my brother's an architect. Um, so I think that actually is at the heart of how I've approached business. I don't approach it from the background of being an accountant or, or, or an economist. I actually approach it from, from the 
perspective of being an artist and I therefore visualize business in pictures as opposed to numbers. If you come out of something like the military where it's very disciplined and you can literally hang someone from the yardarm and you swing to the other side of challenging quite significantly concepts and management, was it easy for you to fit into something like a naval career? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. I mean, I, I, the Navy was in a particularly bad period. It was pre-Falklands when I was in the Navy. Um, and therefore, the, I'd gone in for, you know, go and see the world. I don't think I'd got further than Portsmouth Wharf uh, for, for most of my time in the Navy, with the exception of a, of a brief period of time when we did an anti-gun running patrol off Northern Ireland, and I think it got below Force 8 for one day in, in a month. Um, I decided that that possibly wasn't the career for me. Um, but the military, interestingly, is actually far more flexible than you might think. It's about creating an environment where an individual will do the unthinkable. And they'll do the unthinkable because they're well led, and they will do it not for a great cause, but they'll do it for the man on the right or the man on the left. And, and to me, that's the essence of leadership in business. It is getting people to do things as a cohesive unit but not just for the person that leads them, but because you've built a team around them and they're doing it as much as anything for the, for the team members. Right. So you're working in Australia, you're there on a contract period, and there's certain things that attracted you to stay on. No, I stayed on primarily because of a thing called Blue Arrow. Um, I worked for County Nat West in those days, and uh, just at the time of the stock market crash in 87, um, County Nat West had done a uh, uh, underwritten a leverage buyout of manpower by Blue Arrow, which went horribly wrong and ended up with most of the senior management being arrested, um, and, and which then proceeded to be, I think, the then most the longest and most expensive commercial trial in British history. Um, my boss in Australia uh, took me aside and said, Andrew, you can either go back to that, or you can stay here. The sun was shining on the harbour. I was eating very good seafood at the time, and I thought, well, actually, you know, it's better here than there. So what attracted you then to come to New Zealand from Australia? Uh, I, I actually came here to buy a business. I mean, I'd, I'd worked a little bit um, in New Zealand uh, some years ago when we'd bought a business, when I floated realestate.com.au in in. Australia, we'd actually bought a, a comparable business over in New Zealand, so it had some exposure. But I, I came here specifically to buy Perpetual Trust, right. um, which uh, I, I understood was for sale in, in 2012, um, and so I, I, I flew over from the UK to buy that, and that was, that was the real reason of coming to New Zealand. When you looked at the sort of financial services industry in New Zealand, how did you see it? I mean, how did you view it? Uh, well, in a way, I, I was, it was familiar territory because obviously the big banks here were all the same entities as I had been familiar with in, in Australia. Um, the fiduciary market in which we operate that component of financial services was very, very staid and in some, uh, in some strife, I think, when I came over, which is why I thought 
there was a good opportunity in the in the fiduciary market. Um, I like trust companies anyway. I think they're very misunderstood. But this market, you know, it, it's not a market you you wake up in the morning and say I want to be a trust officer. Um, you know, it's a very, very niche business that isn't well understood. And, is and is I thought something it was that the banks have missed out on? I think so. Hmm. Uh, I, I think if you look historically, certainly when I first started in banking in the 80s, uh, you would do estate planning as part of the component. Yes. Um, what's happened is, of course, the banks then left it alone broadly. But, but actually understanding generational wealth transfer I think is the, the one of the key growth industries going forward. You know, we've just got, with the baby boom generation, the most affluent generation there's ever been. Um, where is that money going to go? Now, trust companies are part of that. They understand who's going to get what, when. Um, and I think that's, that's very valuable information. So it does surprise me that the banks pulled out of that. Now, interestingly, only this morning I was reading an article where uh, they were referring to, I think, Royal Bank of Canada looking at, uh, you know, marriages, deaths as being a component of their strategy going forward. So I think the industry is just going around full circle, as always. Right. If the banks are talking about 50% of their personal customers not even coming through the door and doing everything on iPhone, mm -hmm. does that distance them from some of those service areas? Well, I think it does. And I think, again, this is why uh, I think the trust industry is so interesting. Uh, um, I mean, obviously, we deal in, in both the philanthropic side, the corporate side, and the personal side. But in the personal side, um, it might be a bit glib, but you lie to your bank manager because you earn more money. You say you earn more money so you can get a bigger loan. You sort of lie to your accountant because you earn less money so you don't pay so much tax. You don't lie to the person who writes your will. Right. because that information is critical to ensure that your family is looked after, that your estate is distributed according to your wishes, that your children are protected. Mm -hmm. And so we are guardians of truth in a way that you don't necessarily get elsewhere in financial services. Apart from perpetual, what sort of fiduciary services pieces did you add in to the mix when you... Well, the, the, the journey was, was, again, I mean, not, not planned. I came to buy Perpetual Trust, and then in short order, uh, the trust company in Australia came under sustained assault from a combination of three trust companies or three financial services businesses in Australia. Um, when Perpetual in Australia, no relation, bought um, the trust company, they said, to me that they weren't interested in retaining New Zealand Guardian Trust. So we bought that and then Covenant trustees came for sale so we bought that and then Foundation came for sale so we bought that and then New Zealand trustee services came for sale so we bought that. So uh, it, it wasn't again a, a planned strategy. We always thought there was an opportunity for consolidation in the space but the fact it consolidated broadly within 18 months of the first acquisition was pure chance. There hadn't been any um, consolidation otherwise for, for, for donkey's years. So where's, where's this go? Where does this market, the fiduciary services market go? Have you got a vision of where it's heading? Um, I think there are probably three core themes. If you look at our corporate business, 
we're broadly about, I think, 72, 73% of the market. Now, actually, that is providing independent supervision of uh, people's monies. And in the context of what we're seeing across the ditch with the Royal Commission, I think the New Zealand um, supervisory regime has actually come out you know, pretty well as a consequence. You have independent scrutiny of decision in a way that arguably you didn't have um, in Australia. Now clearly uh, things like KiwiSaver are going to continue to grow and evolve and therefore the role of the, the statutory supervisor is going to grow along with that, which is providing that, um, I think, first rank of supervisory protection. I think in the, in the philanthropic side, um, the challenge we have here in New Zealand is that we have far too many charities. So one thing we are trying to do is, is effect consolidation um, across the sector so that we don't have competing charities going after the same dollar. To, to work out new methods of driving down the cost of compliance, which then is taking money out of the good causes. Um, and uh, the other thing is actually to think about the fact that charities themselves are being disintermediated, which is uh, an interesting problem, but uh, groups like the Give a Little sites and so on are promoting causes which might be good but are not necessarily philanthropic and that is putting pressure on the traditional uh, charities and philanthropic sector and so working out how you engage with you know the today's community is becoming a bigger bigger problem and then finally in the in the private client side what we're really talking there is digitization it is actually managing to engage with uh, a whole section of the market uh, demographic that probably isn't talking to lawyers in the way that they used to, predominantly because they're not buying a house. So we, we have to think about how we drive that and that's a, a key part of our strategy now. With the Australian thing which you mentioned recently, which has been getting a good deal of publicity, it hasn't got anywhere near the space here, has it really? Because there seems to be a high element of trust in the New Zealand system. Are there, are there vast differences? Is there an opportunity to move towards Australia from the New Zealand base? Uh, yeah, there is always an opportunity. I mean, the challenge from where we sit, of course, is that the supervisory regime is different right. um, um, in Australia to New Zealand. And you do, don't get the same structures there that you get here. Um, so, you know, we, we're always looking uh, at what might be you know, feasible across in Australia. But the challenge we have as a business is there aren't that many operational synergies between what we're doing here and what you could do in Australia. When we think of the charities, and you mentioned them and the number of them, there's one for every 170 New Zealanders or something, 114,000 yeah. registered charity things. Uh, uh, and the industry is a huge one. Um, there's no question of that. Um, if you're looking at it, how do you, how do you judge what you should support? Uh, again, we are... Because you're the recommender, aren't you, for the support? Yes, I mean, look, we, we have two things. I mean, we have uh, 650 charitable foundations that we are trustee for. We distribute between 30 and $40 million a year. 
which in a New Zealand context is actually quite quite substantial in, in a global context, not so much. Um, now, in a lot of cases, we have trusts that are highly prescriptive as to where you put the money. One of my favourites is is that if you're in hospital in Dunedin at Christmas, uh, we have a charity that will distribute some money to everybody in hospital. It means that you can have half a, half a pint of spades on a Christmas on Christmas Day, and that obviously charity's Pretty been around for ver- yeah been around for decades. Um, so uh, some of our activities are constrained in that way. Um, that is actually one of the challenges. Um, so that sometimes people have put in place restrictions around where the money goes, which means that in the modern environment you you can't distribute the money. Right. I mean, we had a recent one in Auckland University where we had a charity that was supporting the medical library. Well, the medical library is now digitized. The building is redundant. So we have to repurpose a charity to enable it to operate effectively in the 21st century. Does that mean going back to the High Court and getting a, a ruling on the way in which the trustee is set up? It can be, yes. It right. can be absolutely going back to the courts to get right. that sorted out. So, you know, that's that helps because you have in, helps and hinders. You've got a, quite a prescriptive outcome. I think when it comes to more general giving, that's where this it starts to become a little bit more interesting because uh, again, there, there is a blurring of lines between um, socially responsible businesses and charitable. Now, in a way, if I am deploying money, does it matter whether it's totally philanthropic or it's a social enterprise, provided the outcome is the outcome that the giver wanted to achieve? And so that's an area where I think the, the philanthropic community is starting to debate that question. And you're seeing um, some blurring with some charities actually now having commercialization as part of the suite of tools that they have. And that makes sense because at the end of the day, you're getting the impact, the social impact, and, or, or, or what you're particularly targeting at the end of the day. Do you have the role of recommending charitable purposes for people mm, putting okay. and, and what sort of things, what sort of qualifications would you put around that when you make measure what sort of purpose should they support? I mean not necessarily the charity, but what things should they look for in that purpose? I I'm very keen on on outcome, um, impact and outcome, frankly. Um, now I, I see there are two two purposes in a way. One is is the, the, the giving that you need to do to keep things ticking along. Because you can often, for, people often forget about that. You know, they, they I want to see a, a great big outcome and they forget that charities require everyday funding to keep their, their activities flowing. So uh, I, we always think there's a portion has to be deployed in that way. Then again, um, I actually also see that there's an opportunity for philanthropy, and, and we're increasingly pushing this, to take those chances that often charities won't do it because they say we can't possibly do that. If we do that, that's you know we need to keep our day-to-day activities going. So there's a subset out there which I think creates um, an opportunity, a discussion about how we address social issues. So. 
a lot of the time now we are we're increasingly talking to donors about looking in those areas where if we can prove the model works, prove an outcome, then that either enables government or other charities to come along later on, pick up that, and actually then uh, exploit it, deploy it, and move it forward. Right. Because uh, you're correct on your first part of that, which is really interesting. I mean, recently one of um, uh, a, a very prominent New Zealanders given a children's hospital, for example, to Wellington. But the next question you raise when you say, yes, we've now established a children's hospital, we're building it, is who's going to fund it? Is that a taxpayer obligation suddenly, <laughs> or is that something that there's a provision for for the charity to look after? So, so it has to have a portion of both, doesn't it? The capital Absolutely. plus the on-running costs. Absolutely. This and this is, you know, I, d I don't care which particular you know sector you're in, which particular cause you're in. This is exactly the same problem that we're seeing again and again and again. And often that there is a reluctance on donors to support the day-to-day -day because you, know, you can't put a plaque on it. And, and that therefore creates some problems down the track. You can buy a building but you can't put a plaque on the services that yep. continue in it. Yep. If, um, if you're looking at some of the, the businesses you've acquired and you've accumulated in that last few years, productivity's obviously been an issue in here, hasn't it? And, and mm -hmm. what were they like when you picked them up? Did they, did they need, I mean, obviously significant work in coming into the modern age, but productivity would have been a feature. Oh, productivity was a significant I think that, I'm mean, not to put too fine a point on it, in certain in the trust industry, when you walked through the door of a couple of these businesses in, in 2012, 2013, um, the reality is, uh, you know, uh, they've been around since the 1880s. You, 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 you If you'd walked in in the 1880s, you'd have recognised what people were doing. Cool pens were missing, now. but apart from that, it was... Yeah, we, we, that's right. We'd, we'd got rid of the green eye shades and... and, and and so on. But productivity was very, very low. I think that you find, uh, and, and I, I've also you know, turned one of these around in Australia, and uh, my favourite part of that, I think, was my, I had one of my operation directors uh, wander into a board once and said, look, we've got a 175-step process, and we've re-engineered it. Um, how many steps do you think it is? And we all took steps, and she said at the end of it, actually zero. It was completely and utterly worthless. And what happens with these organizations is that they do things because they've, they, they're one of the few businesses that have been around, you know, for 130 years, some of the oldest continuously trading businesses in Australia and New Zealand. And these processes become institutionalized. And so you have to, you have to break that. You have to get staff to question why they're doing what they're doing um, and once you can get that culture of change embedded in the organization then you can see very significant improvements in terms of productivity and I you know look at the journey we've come on on the last you know four to five years um, you know the year I bought the company we'd written 91 wills I mean I could have stood on uh, Lambert Key in Wellington and written 91 wills myself um, but we will now do between five and six thousand wills with fewer staff now that's just one indication right. of the capabilities that you can get when you challenge um, you know existing thought
in this portfolio of businesses, what's the next development? What's the what's what's the next piece that you add into it? And and longer term, how does it endure? Oh, uh, I guess my my the theming of business that I have is I I like businesses where the industry is. I'm going to use the word dull. Um, it's perceived to be dull. It isn't. Um, where everybody broadly needs the product, and and yet there is limited innovation. So you know we have done that in in the trust space. We have uh, we have the world's leading um, estate planning software business. Um, similar concept, traditional ways of writing wills. We we use a combination of technology. We're going into AI and blockchain, and uh, uh, we have you know significant market share across. A number of Commonwealth countries, um, and we're just starting a, a, a different journey with 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 payroll and a different uh, opportunity in, in in the group. And again, it's a similar thing. And you know, these are long-established, dull, boring activities, but the scope for innovation and bringing them into the 21st century is material. So that's that's the the sort of the theme of our investing. Yes. As an individual, you like to focus on businesses with a high level of change management potential, obviously. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm the last person you should put in charge of a business that's operating well. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the, the, I mean, if you if you looked ahead at some of the other businesses in New Zealand that you'd love to get your hands around, is there anything that on a blank sheet of paper that would occur to you that you could introduce massive change to for the benefit of New Zealanders? Well, it's not really massive change, but, but the two areas that really fascinate me at the moment are uh, agriculture and, and also um, clothing manufacturing. Um, now, the two are slightly linked because I, I have this, I'm very interested in the whole sheep to shop. Right concept and, and whether that be, be, be food production or whether it be wool production and the use of that. But, but I think that, or at least I have a thesis, that what we are about to see over the next sort of 10 to 15 years is a considerable shift in both aspects uh, of the, the in those industries, I, you know, there will be the question whether food production will be more manufactured from high protein sources, right. whether it will be generated out of the lab. If that's the case, where does free range food sit in that spectrum, and what is it that will make the consumer pay the premium for that product? And when I look at, at, at clothing garment manufacture, I mean, I, I, I see that, you know, you, you're seeing specially trends offshore whereby there is a return to artisan high-quality production. I mean, I, I love the, there's a particular story that the first cotton-spinning plant in Manchester for 50 years was opened some months ago. Um, and the, the, the manufacturing shirts where the cotton is spun in Manchester and dyed in Bolton and woven in Blackburn and then back to Manchester to be made into shirts. Now, conventional wisdom says that cannot happen. It should be totally and utterly uneconomic. But clearly, short production runs, just in time, meeting fashion trends, quality are interesting themes, and, and I'm fascinated in that because that then says, well, why isn't that happening here? 
Yes, these are niche markets we're talking about. Well, it doesn't need to necessarily need to be niche um, in that the the concept of producing 300,000 garments somewhere in Asia, right. putting it on a boat, shipping it somewhere, and then trying to sell those garments. And if the fashion has moved on and the trend has moved on and the climate is it's not as hot or as cold as you expected, means that you then have high wastage. And we know that significant proportions of garment manufacture go straight from unsailed stock and then are recycled out to Africa and, and so on as we, as we speak at the moment. I'm, I'm thinking that that is something that's not sustainable. There might be something in wool scales, uh, having talked to one of the last surviving managers, one of the last surviving wool scales in New Zealand, uh, facing our declining sheep numbers, he uh, mentioned to me that uh, the trouble with wool was it should look more like synthetics and I was scratching my head all the way home <laughs> trying to work out what he was talking about. Uh, but there may be a future in that when you're talking about a specific garment and micron level or something yes. rather that you're trying to produce and more tailored production of your domestic yeah. product. Yeah, yeah. I I'm, I'm fascinated, there's a, there's a little clothing business that, that is doing some great stuff. Again, it's based in Manchester in the UK and has absolutely developed a niche on high quality production but using literally UK product. Right. And, and the only thing that it doesn't get out of the UK are the zips and the studs, which you get sources from Switzerland. Now, that's a business that is challenging conventional wisdom about manufacturing and I find that fascinating and therefore I'm interested in whether there's the opportunity to do that here. It's an intellectual approach isn't it really to something that's a challenging problem? Yes, yeah, uh, look, I, I, as I said I'm the last person you want to put in charge of a business that's, that's running normally. I, 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 I do like the intellectual challenge of looking at an industry and trying to re-envisage where I think it might go. When we talk about some of those challenges, one of the things of course is the focus of work and what's the future of work and where people are going. Um, and uh, you've had a fair input to that uh, more recently. Uh, in fact, um, we've seen things such as the uh, four-day week which we've mm. just seen pop up and I know there's more on that coming later on. But statistically, um, the experience where you introduced it to one of your companies, what actually happened? And what was the philosophy behind it? Well, I, I literally read a couple of articles. Uh, I'm, I'm most dangerous when I'm traveling because I, I then have time to read. And I read a couple of articles which indicated that uh, one was UK, one was Canada. Um, and it, they suggested that actual productivity in a day in the UK context it was two and a half hours, in the Canadian context it was one and a half hours. And I thought about this and when I came back to, to New Zealand I, I got my uh, long-suffering head of HR into a room and said I've got this idea to, to see if we could work uh, four days a week I will pay the staff for five. Not a not a uh, expanded working day but their normal working working day on the four days that they were working. And the thesis really was that if in fact actual productivity was two and a half hours, if I dropped a day I only had to pick up, you know, 45 minutes a day on each of the four days and I'm square. Now 
that was the that was the sort of glib approach to trying to do it. But at the same time, I had a philosophy that said I want people in my organisations to be the best they can be in the office, but I want them to be the best they can be outside the office, at home with their families. And I felt that given the pressures of modern life, if I could give a day back so that you could do all those things that otherwise you were trying to juggle during your working day. One is I would get better focus in the working day, but at the same time I would actually be making the, the home, the work-life balance environment for my staff that much better. So there was absolutely no science in it whatsoever um, other than I thought it was a good idea. You were suggesting an industrial revolution, in fact, really, weren't you? Mm, well, yeah, possibly. Um, what we then did, which I think was different, was that we went to the staff and said, look, we're going to do this, but we have absolutely no idea how we're going to do it. So you tell us. So we, we announced it to the staff and we gave them a month to come up with what they would do team by team, to prove that productivity levels remained at the same level or higher, um, how they would do individual bits of work, how they would take their rostered days off and so on. And what that did was it basically did a process re-engineering from the bottom up as opposed from top down. You're empowering them to tell you this yeah. is the output, so how do we get there? Yeah, yeah, and, and that has you know, that was the really interesting piece because, frankly, what then happened is it started to peel back an awful lot of other layers. Um, it, raises, it raises questions, for example, about the gender pay gap, which is very topical at the moment. Uh, but quite often you will find that when uh, a woman returns to work after having a child, the first thing she does is negotiate um, around the hours in the office not about the productivity and what we are doing now is saying the hours in the office are irrelevant we want you to focus solely on productive output and that's the deal that I have with my staff you deliver me the productivity I want frankly I don't care if you're in the office for five days so that was not something we initially expected to see but it's one of the discussions that started to come because then you have people going, well, look, I don't want to work four days. I'd like to work five, but I want to do compressed hours because I have other responsibilities, generally childcare. I want to pick, you know, drop off children, pick up children. So <coughs> what's happened as a consequence of this is that we have got a much better levels of interaction and respect because it's mutual respect here between management and staff, but you're actually starting to question a lot of norms because you're really coming back to this focus on productivity. Um, and the byproducts are interesting. You drop 20% of your staff in the office right. in any one day, <coughs> interruptions go down. Now, one of the great pieces of reading that you, I then did uh, as I was looking at this was that if you were interrupted doing something, it would take you between 30 minutes and 45 minutes to get back up to the full level of productivity. And there was some research that suggested that if this happened on a regular basis through your day, it was the equivalent of a 10-point drop in your IQ or operating under the influence of marijuana. So, <laughs> so what I'm 
starting to see is that when you put this in place, you get lots of unintended consequences that deliver higher levels of productivity. Um, but some of that is that the staff equally come out and say, well, actually, if I am having to work four days, I need to be more efficient. So I'm going to put a thing in my um, pencil pot that's a flag that says, if that flag's there, don't disturb me because I need to focus and work. So you're getting these outcomes. Some of it is, is a byproduct, and some of it is quite deliberate, that staff are sitting there saying, actually, I need to focus on productivity whilst I'm in the office so I can get my day off. Could some groups do it better than others? Yeah, I mean, we've w the way we approached it, we did it on a team-by-team -team basis, and, um, and some teams failed. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, that was often as much as a consequence of a failure of leadership as it was a failure of the team to deliver the outcome. Um, and so, again, another byproduct of this is it forces you to look very seriously at your leadership team and how they um, energize the, the group that works When for some groups looked at what was going on with the other groups, did they refocus themselves and come back? Or has that not had the opportunity to do that yet? I think to an extent there was some refocusing. I mean, certainly there was behavioral change. We see that uh, again and again and again. Lots of, of good little anecdotes of, right. of individuals who will change the way they would do things in order be to A, get their day off, but B, it's self-policing. Remember, if you failed, we could take your day off back. Right. Um, and therefore, coming back to, to, to where we started um, uh, about the military and the guy on your left on the guy on your right, uh, if you actually think about this, the person who is policing this is the guy on your left and the guy on your right. If you're slacking and that causes the whole team to lose their day off a week, it's not a happy place it's a to be. It's high motivation to actually <laughs> Absolutely. move it along, yes. Absolutely. So, it is one of the uh, it is one of the byproducts of this that it, it, it becomes self policing. It's a disciplined study you've done, obviously, and you've seen some of the early initial results, and they're looking good. Yeah, they're looking very good. Um, you know, productivity. There seemed to have been no obvious decline in productivity over the period. Uh, in fact, given that actually our productivity was maintained, clearly we are more productive within the hour than we were before. Do you think it's sustainable? Well, I'd like to hope we'll find out shortly. Um, I, I think that you have to have a team that is ready for change and ready to be challenged. Right. Uh, if you haven't got that as a base point, I think you would struggle. And I think you also have to have a, an energized team. Now, that is a byproduct. We have seen engagement levels uh, go up materially by about 30%, frankly. Well, have you got plans to sort of publish the results of this so other people can take the learnings? Yeah, uh, the, uh, I think, uh, uh, again, as we said right at the start, this was the. We, it, you know, we didn't expect anybody really interested in this. We, we ran a. We were we had one story that ran on on New Zealand television, and then it suddenly went went global. So 
we then sat down and said, well, actually, no, this is really interesting. This is, this is bigger than we thought it was. Because I think it's fair to say that then we are not aware of anybody who has done the pay five days, work four days, not shortening or compressing um, the, the, the working week anywhere in the world. And there may be people who've done it, but we never came across them. So we then said, well, look, we think it is an important debate for New Zealand that the, this information is made available. So we've commissioned two independent research reports from AUT and Auckland University. Um, we have put the data up on the website, uh, fourdayweek.co.nz. Um, we have put up there all our presentation material, our briefing materials, uh, press reports, the uh, research reports will go up, the outcome reports will go up. And basically we are saying to, to any company in New Zealand or even internationally, um, if you want to talk about this, come and talk to us about it. Because it we, yeah, we actually think this is, a, this is an important debate. It's important because it goes beyond productivity. It goes to... Uh, the health and well-being of your staff. Yeah. It goes to issues around, you know, let's not over-inflate an eight-week trial at this point, but it goes to things like infrastructure. If you can take 20% of commuters off the road every day because every organisation is doing this, what does that do to infrastructure needs? It certainly help the fuel tanks, yeah, it? <laughs> it does, indeed. What does it do to childcare? What does it do to family cohesion? Um, does that mean you need fewer offices? Once you've got your mindset around productivity, why stop at four days? Mm. Um, and so there are lots of things that come out of this that we think this is a catalyst for having a sensible, mature, informed debate between shareholders, management, employees, obviously, in the, in the wider community. Not an easy debate to lead in a country that's got um, so much government um, in it, which is, I think, 46% of our boards are appointed by government or something like that, over 500 of them. So it's not a government debate that you can lead as it. It's almost opposed, they're almost opposed by their sheer bureaucratic machinery. This needs to come from a management aspect. Well, yeah, I think it does. And I think the reality is, you, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be you know, a principal shareholder in my business, and I can, I could take the risk. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I could, I can imagine how a debate would have gone down in a, in a government entity about trying this. So uh, it has to come from the business entrepreneurial side of, of, of the business community. Yeah. But actually, um, interestingly, the very first study that indicated that if you dropped a working week, your productivity went up, was a British munitions factory in the First World War, dropping from seven days to six days. And productivity went up. And productivity went up. I'd love to see the debate with the Minister of Labour and you on this particular <laughs> subject. Uh, look, <coughs> you've been a finalist, I noticed when I was doing some of the research and the Entrepreneur of the Year awards um, a couple of times. And, um, and when I was just looking at that, I, I noticed also it's a subject that's now being taught at university level. Can you teach such a subject at university level? 
I'm not sure you can, actually. I think you can teach principles around the creation and development of business. But I do think that you are either an entrepreneur or you're not. I mean, you have to have the ability to take uh, risk. You have to be very focused. And I think you have to be pretty self-reliant, frankly. Now, with the best will in the world, not everybody has those attributes. Uh, and thank God, because you know, we, if we were all entrepreneurs, society might be a little bit more interesting than it is now. <laughs> a little bit more difficult but to manage. Yeah, indeed. But, but, but I think you can, you can teach principles that will help people to create businesses. But I think not everybody at the end of the day will be comfortable in, in, in taking that step. When you get into the philanthropic space, you're, you're obviously a person who's heavily committed to that and it's and, and you've got some quite interesting views on it. And you've covered quite a wide range of, of charitable purposes from what I can see. It's gone from museums to music to art. Yep. Um, is there something that attracts you particularly? Is there some sort of underlying cause that you look at and say that's worth supporting? No, I think my base principle is I was, you know, I'm, I was lucky enough to come to, to this country, um, which has been very good to me. And I believe that if you, if you are a, a citizen of New Zealand, frankly, you've broadly won the lottery of life. Um, and as a consequence, you have to then start to say, well, isn't there an obligation upon me to give back? Isn't there an obligation to think about the society that we have here? And this didn't, society didn't evolve um, in a way by accident. It, it happened because um, historically people did things that were, you know, for the greater good, whether it be establishing a park or a school or a university or what have you. And so I am passionate that actually we have to ensure that the society, the, the, the history of the society, that created all these opportunities and gave yeah, I, I came from the UK, but I got those opportunities in the UK, and, and obviously my colleagues here have got them in New Zealand, that we are continuing to ensure that those opportunities are available for the generation, the current generation and the generations to come. And that puts an obligation to say, right, what can we support? Now, again, it's very easy to look at uh, certain aspects of society which get well supported and forget that things like the arts, music, don't necessarily get very well supported, but are a very integral part of the culture that we have here. A good balanced society. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so um, uh, you know, we, I'm fairly eclectic in, in the things that, are, that, that I support, and, and that's, it's got to spark my interest. And that could be, you know, in the case of, of Otago, we, we, we helped fund the planetarium down there. Right. I, I mean, I, I did that because I, I thought if you want to get kids to be interested in science, the easiest way to do it is show them something spectacular uh, about, you know, space or, the, or the, 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 the natural world in a way that will get their imagination running and it's better to do that than any number of textbooks. Mm -hmm. So that 
was the, the theory for that. But equally, we, we support other projects here, which are all about getting kids to participate in, in music or drama or what have you. And, and I think that's an important part of a balanced society. In looking at um, the charitable giving just recently, I noticed that only about 3% of the charitable giving came out of corporates. And um, you know we've got one or two corporates that we see that significantly assign a portion of their profits across to a charitable purpose, but not very many. Is there a message for corporates who have that sort of, I mean, what people have called before the corporate social responsibility, which allows them to exist inside society? I think that's a difficult one because you can run an argument that says that you know it's up to the shareholder to uh, deploy their profits in a philanthropic way rather than up to the company to make those so decisions. Discretion yeah, but but clearly we are citizens, corporate citizens, and therefore at the same time there clearly is a role for companies to think about supporting things that, and if you want to take a hard-nosed commercial view on it, supporting things that support the business that you're in and therefore you know, look for those opportunities where actually it, it blurs the lines between giving and commercial outcome, right. but, but it's defensible as far as the shareholder is, is concerned. The other side of it is I think that payroll giving isn't pushed, supported as much as it should be. And that's important because I think if you can, you can use corporate monies to match right. payroll giving. And part of that is it creates better engagement with your staff. Again, it's that blurring of the philanthropic and the corporate line. But we haven't seen that take off really here in, in New Zealand at all. It's something that we're, we're thinking about quite a bit as to how we make that happen. Andrew Barnesfram, thanks for your time. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well.